When I was in college, I was involved in several variations of student activities. I was an RA in a freshman dormitory. I served on our campus activity board. I was president of the Baptist campus ministry and I was an orientation leader, which means that sometimes it felt like I was majoring in religion, which was my academic major, but I was also majoring in icebreakers. You know, those things, those activities that are intended for a group of strangers to get to know each other quickly and to find something in common with other people in the group. One of the easiest icebreakers to lead is the Would You Rather game. You may be familiar with it. It involves everybody standing in the middle of the room, and then you are given two choices, and you must pick which one you prefer by moving to the side of the room designated for each choice. So for example, I might say, would you rather it always be summer or always be winter? And you would move to the side that you prefer. Or I might say, would you rather wash dishes or fold laundry? And you have to pick an answer. I despise both of those things, but you must choose. Or maybe I would say, would you rather shower just once a week with hot water or every day with only cold water? Or would you rather cheer for the Hokies or any team but UVA? You can easily see how this game can encourage laughter, maybe some debating, and it would allow the group gathered to get to know one another. And I would always ask the question, would you rather live closer to the mountains or closer to the beach? Now, I am assuming that since we live in Waynesboro, Virginia, that most of you prefer to live in the mountains. But I also know that there are many of you who love the beach, and given the option, you may choose to relocate there if you could. But that's the beautiful thing about our congregation. We are a church that is filled with diversity. We can sit next to people who prefer the opposite thing than we do and worship together no matter which would you rather answer you would choose. For me personally, there is something different and unique about the mountains. It has always been a place where my soul can find rest. I have always felt like I am complete when I am surrounded by tall peaks and wide expanses of sky. And after living here for a year and a half, I can confidently say that the mountains are a place that I call home. Throughout the Bible, we find that mountains also hold important significance. In the First Testament, Moses went up to the mountain whenever he was talking to God. Elijah fled to the mountain of God in an attempt to save his life, and it was there that he encountered God in the, in the silence. There are passages throughout Scripture that talk about the mountains trembling because of the Lord and the Lord's works. Mountains have so much significance in the Bible, and this is true in Matthew's gospel. Jesus goes to the mountain and is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus delivers one of his most powerful and challenging sermons on the mountain, and it is on a mountain where Jesus transfigures. One of the last places that Jesus goes before his arrest and crucifixion is the Mount of Olives. In scripture, mountains are often a place where someone goes so that they can feel closer to God or closer to Christ. Our scripture today opens with the disciples meeting Jesus on a mountain. 
They have traveled from Jerusalem back to Galilee, back to the place where it all began. In Matthew's gospel, an angel is at the tomb, and the angel tells the women to go find the disciples and to tell the disciples to go to Galilee and to meet Jesus there. And so as the women are running from the tomb to go find the disciples, Jesus himself appears on the road, and he reiterates the message. The women pass along this message, and the disciples are now listening faithfully and are making their way to Galilee. I wonder if the disciples are actually doing this because they confidently believe that Jesus is alive. Remember, in Matthew's gospel, none of the male disciples have seen Jesus yet. I wonder if any of them were making this trip because they wanted proof. Maybe none of them believed that Jesus was alive, but they didn't feel like they could say that out loud because they didn't want to be considered a doubter. So they just go along with it. I'm sure that the disciples were filled with many emotions, fear and doubt, nervousness, hopefully some excitement. Who knew what they would find when they arrived in Galilee? They travel, and when they finally get there, they meet Jesus on the mountain, their first encounter with the resurrected Christ. And they see their friend who was once dead but is now alive, and their response is to worship him. Maybe they fell to their knees and prayed. Maybe they sang together. We're not really sure what their worship looked like, but we know that they worshiped. But they also had another reaction when they saw Jesus. Two or three little words that have caused many people to pause and to ponder. In verse 17, it says, but some doubted. And there is a lot of commentary out there on these words, more than I thought possible. But here are a few things that I found interesting and hope will be interesting to you as well. The first concerns the tall, tiny, small, insignificant word in the middle, some. According to some scholars, this word should not be translated as some, but should be translated as they, which makes the passage sound different. Verse 17 could say, when they saw him, they worshipped him and they doubted. Even more accurately, it could say they worshipped him and they hesitated, which I kind of like a little bit better. Maybe they all hesitated as they were worshipping. Maybe only a few. I wonder who hesitated, who doubted. Probably Thomas, because he is known as Doubting Thomas after all. But in Matthew's Gospel, it is Peter who tends to be the one that hesitates the most. Or maybe Matthew himself was confessing that he was doubting and that he did not fully believe that this was happening, but he didn't want to come out and say it directly. The point is that somewhere along the way, editors had to choose between some and they, and only some won out in the end. There is also some significance around the word doubt. The unique form of this verb in the Greek is only found one other time in the New Testament, also in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 14. And this is the story where Peter is walking on the water to go out to meet Jesus. And as Peter is walking, he doubts, and then he begins to sink. In that story about faith and doubt, once Jesus reaches out to Peter and save him, all of the disciples worship Jesus and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
We have this stormy story and a resurrection story that seems to have a mixture of the disciples doubting and worshiping. The juxtaposition of these opposite thoughts should be comforting for us to hear, I hope. As we sit in this sacred space today, each of us is coming from a different place, bringing with us our own baggage and our own questions. This mountaintop experience provides a fairly accurate example of any congregation today. Some of us are here, able to worship wholeheartedly. Others of us are here, maybe filled with more questions than answers. Maybe we're on the edge of losing our faith altogether. But here on this mountain, Jesus' closest friends have gathered. And yet, even though he has told them many times who he is, and he has shown them miracles and good works, and he has told them what is going to happen, even those closest to Jesus are still filled with doubt. I can't say that I blame them. This is the first time that anything like this has happened. And if you are being honest with yourself, how do you think you would react? I know that I would maybe have more questions than answers, but that is the benefit of being the person standing in the pulpit, is that I get to wrestle with this worship and doubt thing and have been all week long. But if I'm honest, I've wrestled with it at various times throughout my life. And I would imagine that I'm not the only person in this room who has. How is it possible to have faith and doubt right next to each other in the same space and at the same time? When I was in youth group, our church attended youth camp every summer. And I loved camp. I still love camp. I loved the long days. I loved all the people. I loved being completely immersed into something that was so different than my regularly scheduled programming at church or at school. Our youth group would go to Ridgecrest, North Carolina, which is North Carolina's version of Camp Crossroads or Eagle Eyrie, and we would spend the week with hundreds of other students, meeting new friends, studying the Bible, and worshiping together. As a preacher's kid, it was my highlight of the year. We were literally on top of a mountain, separated from the world and worshiping God. But I remember at my, my third summer at camp, I was sitting in worship one night as the band was playing with guitars and drums and the room was filled with colorful stage lights and other campers raising their hands as we sang and I had this thought, this is baloney. What are we doing here? Why am I in this room and with all of these people believing that Jesus is actually God's son? I feel like we're being brainwashed right now and we don't even know it. And so I sat there for the rest of the night, going through the motions of worship and pretending like everything was fine, but I secretly wanted to fake a stomach ache so that I could leave that worship space and go sit outside to go sit in the mountains and wait for God to give me a sign that being a Christian isn't crazy. And I wish that I could say that suddenly there was this bright light or this loud voice, but there wasn't. What followed were a lot of weeks of questioning and asking questions to my parents and to my youth minister and to other adults who I trusted and at some point along the road, I remember being told that questioning things like our faith is not a bad thing because God can handle it. 
wondering what's the point of all of this is actually quite a common question for those in any type of religion, including Christianity. Author and theologian Brian McLaren says that for him, doubt is sometimes absolutely essential to faith. Doubt is a call for attention and a call to action. Without doubt and asking questions, we might be gullible and naive, and no one wants to be described as these things all the time. In his ministry, Jesus tells his followers that they should become like children in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And having a childlike faith is not being gullible or naive. It means that you are asking questions and that you have an insatiable curiosity for the truth. And so here we are literally amongst the mountains symbolically jesus is right in front of us and we as his disciples don't know what to do with that we worship and we doubt and jesus speaks and that makes the disciples feel a little bit better because at least they aren't hallucinating but what he says is just as confusing as him being physically in front of the disciples he says go make more disciples. And this isn't the first time that Jesus's followers are hearing this. In Matthew 10, Jesus told the disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to share with them the good news. The disciples are probably thinking, yeah, Jesus, we know. Go to the people of God and tell them about you. We understand the assignment. But as always, Jesus likes to push the envelope turn the tables and completely blow everybody's minds because this time he adds three little words go to all nations i imagine that the disciples look at one another and they wonder what he means maybe peter says now jesus when you say all the nations which all the nations do you mean just the same ones as before right and maybe Jesus chuckles to himself, grateful that there are still things that haven't changed in the three days he's been gone. Peter, always questioning Peter. Yes, these same nations as before and all of the other ones. I'm changing what I said before, but that's the point because everything is different now. To relate it to today's terms, Thomas Long says, telling this little band of confused and disoriented disciples that they are to herd all of the people to Mount Zion in the name of Jesus would be like a pastor standing in front of congregations today and saying, go into the world and cure cancer, clean up the environment, evangelize to the unbelieving, and while you're at it, establish world peace. Pretty simple, right? Not a tall request at all. Who among us is ready to go to the world and do all of these things at the same time? I might be if I got to choose my destination, but I don't feel like that is how Jesus' commission to the disciples works. And that is the point. We are to be the hands and feet of Christ to those that no one else wants to go to. They are to teach, we are to teach everyone to obey what Jesus said. And the main message that Jesus said is love. In all things, love. To all people, love. In all places, love. Jesus has commissioned his friends, the ones that he's journeyed with for the last three years. But what is most important is that Jesus is commissioning his friends and us 
who are imperfect, who waver in their faith, and who doubt. We are the ones called to carry out this task. Never once in this passage does Jesus rebuke the disciples for doubting. From the very beginning, there was doubt. But this doubt is not presented as an obstacle to discipleship, but as an element of discipleship. And so once the disciples have wrapped their heads around their new job description, Jesus leaves them with these words. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. In the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, we read that when the angel came to Mary and told her that she would have the baby, the angel also instructs her to give the baby a name that is a promise. Mary, your child will be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of Matthew, the same promise is given to the disciples. Jesus promises them that he will be with them always. No matter which gospel you read, this promise is found in them all. The promise that no matter what, God is there. Through the doubts and through worship, God is there. Those of you dealing with unimaginable loss or unexpected challenges, Emmanuel. To those of you filled with doubts and questions, Emmanuel. To those of us who are the hands and feet of Christ, Emmanuel. To those of us who have come here in search of hope, Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the darkest valleys and the highest mountaintops. And so whatever you are bringing to this space today, Emmanuel, go and make disciples and remember, Emmanuel, God is with us. And that, my friends, my imperfect, wavering, doubting, worshiping friends, is good news indeed. Amen.